Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, and in this episode we're going to be discussing the Eucharist, which is also known as Communion or the Lord's Supper. Now, the Eucharist is a sacrament, and it is covered by Article number 13 in the Church of the Nazarene Manual. And our conversation today is going to start by giving a brief history of the Eucharist, and then we're going to discuss some questions around receiving the Eucharist, and then have some extra thoughts on partaking the Eucharist in vain. So today we're going to have a history. What does the word mean? What does it really mean to be someone who is receiving communion? Where does that fit in with the life of the church? And why is it a sacrament? So thank you for joining us. Again, this is Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and here with me in the studio is... Uh, Pastor Mendes Farrow. Pastor Anthony Alegria. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. All right, and thank you for joining us. Again, please support us by just grabbing a link to our material and sharing it with some others. If you would like to, to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelogos. But really, you should make sure that you're involved in your local church, your local fellowship. And again, we're just here to supplement and have a fun conversation about things. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, please send them to us. We would love to hear those and respond back. All right, so today we are going to be talking about the Eucharist, or you might know it as communion. Oftentimes you go into a sanctuary in a church, you'll find a table up towards the front that says something to the effect of, do this in remembrance of me. Now, communion or the Eucharist, it is a very important thing. And it's covered in the Nazarene Manual. And Pastor Amanda, would you lead us off by letting us read Article 13 in the Manual? All right. reads as follows. We believe that the communion supper instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a sacrament proclaiming his life, suffering, sacrificial death, resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit. All are invited to participate by faith in Christ and be renewed in life, salvation, and in unity as the Church. All are to come in reverent appreciation of its significance, and by it show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Those who have faith in Christ and love for the saints are invited by Christ to participate as often as possible. All right, so we might have this big question right at the beginning of this conversation. What does the word Eucharist mean? You know, it's one of those pieces of jargon which, if you're not familiar with it, it sounds so strange, especially if you're someone who's new to the church or perhaps you've just never heard the word defined. It's a very odd word. It doesn't really find its way through a lot of other English things. So let's begin with just that question. What does the word Eucharist mean? Would anybody here in the studio like to give us a little bit of a pointer on that? Because it comes from a Greek word. Well, I didn't have to take Greek in, in my study, so I'll, I'll leave that to those of you who, who have. <laughs> well, I'm going to put Anthony on the spot. Pastor Anthony, who has just come out of Greek, what is Eucharist meaning? If you could give it a, a bit of a one-word definition. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, that's right. <laughs> so the Eucharist, it is a Greek term for Thanksgiving. And whenever you hear of Eucharist, it is an act of giving thanks. Hence why you see this often inscribed on the front of a wooden table, the altar where the communion will sit. And the Eucharist is the name given to the ritual meal of bread and wine received as Jesus' shed blood and broken body. This meal is the thanksgiving for the gracious gift of God, which is found in salvation. And it's a very serious and humbling right to give thanks to God for sending his only begotten son to be broken and killed so that we could be given eternal salvation. Now, when I say right here, this is R-I-T-E. This is a ritualistic thing. It is a right that we are allowed to participate in, but it's something which is very sacred, and it's something we should take very seriously. 
And as far as the format of this goes, we'll talk more about that as we get through the program. But generally the Eucharist, it is something containing some form of bread and wine. Now there are different ways that this is administered. There's different forms of this. And you may have been at a church where everybody kind of comes up and they dip in a shared glass, or maybe you get the little packets where you open up. Sometimes you get what tastes like cardboard in a little disposable glass. It varies. But the meal should contain some form of bread and wine. And the Eucharist, you'll also find in the church, that it has its own sort of place. And I know when we were going through ministerial school, they were always telling us, you know, that the the table for communion, it should be just that. You know, you don't want to have this decorated. You don't want to have things sitting on there that are going to distract from it. You don't want this to be the new, you know, go-to board where you post everything and put all your little business cards up there. It's not for that. It is something which be given respect as an altar. The Eucharist table is its very special thing. And of course, it's known as the Lord's Supper and Communion. So let's talk a little bit of history behind the, the Eucharist as a sacrament of the church. Because if we look throughout Christian tradition, this is something which appears immediately in the early church. There's a lot of interesting history behind it. So let's find out what exactly was going on with the Eucharist in the early church by going to one of the earliest documents we have. And that is a document known as the Didache. And this, it predates of what we have is the Consolidated New Testament and the biblical canon which we use now. While those texts may have been floating around in some form or another, the Didache was actually circulating as a unified text before that. And Pastor Amanda, would you read for us today, what does the Didache say about the Eucharist? And I do want a preference before I read just real quick. So I'm reading, it is an English translation of the Didache. Um, and yet many of the translations are translated into kind of an old English, think King James um, Bible kind of language. So again, this predates by, by hundreds of years, uh, King James and, and that kind of old English. Uh, however, for some reason, that seems to be kind of the formal language of the church is the yeah. these and the thous. And so when you hear that, uh, that's why uh, it, it is in, in that kind of old English. However, um, it, it, again, it predates the even that kind of language. But I just want to give you reference because as we're kind of exploring the history of it, sometimes it can get confusing of where everything lies on the timeline. But anyways, here is as follows in the English translation of the Dedicae. It says, concerning the Eucharist, after this fashion, give ye thanks. First concerning the cup, we thank thee, our Lord, our Father, for the holy vine, David thy son, which thou hast made known unto us through Jesus Christ thy son, to thee be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou hast made known unto us through Jesus thy Son, to thee be the glory forever. As this broken bread was once scattered on the mountains, and after it, it had been brought together, became one, so may the church be gathered together from the ends of the earth unto thy kingdom, for thine is the glory and the power through Christ Jesus forever. All right, so as you've heard that, you can feel within the Didache there is a ritual side of this. It's got sort of a, a scripted prayer that goes there, and it is something where you hear a lot of language of thanksgiving. We give thank thee, our Father. We see things like that. But it also there is an element of blessing here where you can hear where the church being brought back together, you know, thy kingdom come, the power, the glory, through Christ Jesus forever. You hear this element of blessing that is there. But there is also the endurance through a moment of suffering. It is a remembrance and a thanksgiving, but it is a bit of a combination of things. 
But also found within the Didache is an interesting stipulation because the Didache also has rules for who can participate in the Eucharist and who is not to receive the elements. And according to the Didache, it says as follows, And let none eat or drink of your Eucharist, but such as have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For a truth of the Lord hath said concerning this, and quote, Give not that which is holy unto dogs. Um, so basically it's saying if you have not been baptized by, as prescribed by the Didache, you should not take the Eucharist. Now this is interesting because throughout Christian history, we've seen a lot of playing around with this. I know we were talking a little bit about that in show prep. Um, let's pick back up on that conversation because that's something which actually does concern people a lot. You know, if I haven't been baptized yet, should I take the Eucharist? You know, have I sinned if I've taken the Eucharist without being baptized? Um, we're still in the history section of this right now. We'll get to the other later. So historically, why is it strange to see a stipulation around baptism and the Eucharist? Pastor Meta, pick us up on that conversation. Well, I think, uh, again, putting this in its correct historical context, um, baptism happened generally very early on. And like you hear this in the stories of um, uh, Philip and the eunuch on the way to Ethiopia, or you have uh, Peter going to the centurion, uh, Cornelius, and, and, and telling him, and it's almost as soon as they receive uh, the good news and have accepted the good news that they are immediately baptized and they and their whole families often is how that goes as as even when we read how paul travels uh, um in in the people he encounters we hear that this is this is kind of the proclamation uh that you are now a part of the christian faith is that you are baptized and, and so at the same time as those stories are circulating as as paul or, or the uh, other apostles and disciples are writing down these stories and these letters are circulating you have you know the the dedicate is being organized and constructed um, there's this idea that only those who should come to the communion table or to the Eucharist um, are those who are part of the faith, who have confessed. So they're not just those who say, oh, I think I'm going to be Christian. Because also at this point, it's probably still pretty dangerous to be a Christian. So these are not casual um people are not casual about this and so you by being baptized you were for sure and publicly confessing that you are now part of this new faith and so that's kind of where this is going now later in christendom you're going to see where people are going to hold off baptism until later of, in life because there's some different philosophies about what it means to be baptized and what it means to sin after baptism and so they may those rules may have rewritten because obviously you don't want to wait for communion then yeah there's a huge shift which happens not too long after that where baptism is treated as something you need to do right before death. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people who were worried, you know, if you get baptized and then you sin afterwards, you know, you're not, your eternal salvation is at stake. So the rules with baptism and Eucharist, it kind of gets a little hairy there because if you're delaying baptism to that extent, you know, well, do you just live your whole life without sacraments at all? Do you not have that nourishment in the fellowship, you know? Pastor Mike? Well, I, I think also if we understand uh, the sacraments as, as great, a great mystery, but also that outward sign of an inward grace and inward grace, uh, that it, it is testimony. And so the word for the baptism has often been called the uh, sacrament of initiation, where you are birthed, born into the kingdom of God, born into the church. Uh, and then there is that Eucharist or communion, as I prefer to call it, as or the Lord's Supper, where uh, there is that sacrament of nourishment. So right after a infant is born, obviously they need to be fed and nourished. And so there is something that, that leads us to um, that 
that Christian journey of maturing and being nurtured by the church. So it is uh, a beautiful uh, design uh, that's been given to us by God. Yeah, but it is strange um, how the church has twisted it different ways on that. Because like you said there, the think of baptism as an initiating and then the Eucharist is something which is more enduring. It's, it's giving you that nourishment um, time and time. But then when you see people wanting to delay baptism, it all gets a little bit confusing. Um, Pastor Mike, you had something before going on too. Yeah, I'd like to say something else too, that in these sacraments, uh, they are, they, and I love the word Eucharist in the sense that it is that, um, that uh, Greek word of Eucharisto, but it, it also means Thanksgiving, but even the, the, the Greek on root word on that kind of goes back to grace. And so that we like to use the terminology of receiving the elements, receiving the Eucharist, receiving the Lord's Supper, receiving communion. You also receive a baptism and you don't take those. I know that's just a, you know, um, nitpicking on terminology, but you don't take a gift. There is an element of grace there uh, that is given and we receive. And so the table uh, the Lord's table is a invitation, and you just don't take an invitation, but you receive it. And so I think there, there's even something in the way our terminology of speaking of it is extremely sacred. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about another historical side of this, and that is the love feast. Now, early in the church, and even as we will eventually look at to the, the Gospel of Luke there, you can see where when people were having the Eucharist, it was actually part of a bigger meal. And while we, in the modern day and age, we really think of the Eucharist sort of in the 20th, 21st century mentality of it's been well codified as being a, a sacrament for a long time. But in the early church, they were still trying to figure out where it fit within a larger meal and within the larger fellowship. And in the early days of the church, they had what was called a love feast. And it still exists in different forms today. But early on, it was very common where people would get together and have a love feast. Or it was also called agape. Um, and yes, there's the, the Greek word for love, agape, but there's the meal, which is the agape. And the Eucharist, it was connected with this. It was very much a similar thing. It was kind of like a square and a rectangle because while all squares are rectangles, not all rectangles are squares. And the agape, the love feast, it was a full meal that had the elements of the bread and wine. It had the elements of the Eucharist there, but as time went on, it started to split off, and not in a way that was really opposed to one another, but they just kind of took a different emphasis. Though in the early stages of the church, they were very much overlapped. And really, the agape, the love feast, was just a time of people to come together. It was a fellowship that had a full meal there at the table, and they would have it, and they would have the bread and wine there, so the Eucharist was part of it. But the love feast, it lacked the emphasis on the death and the suffering of Jesus, which is, is quintessential to understanding the, the sacred and the holy nature of something like the Eucharist. But instead, the love feast, it emphasized the fellowship, the joy, the sort of peace and the happiness that one can have when they're part of the Christian fellowship. When they come and they reflect on the salvation they have in Christ, there's joy there. But over time, the love feast and the Eucharist, they really did come to have a different emphasis. And it was the specific rite of the Eucharist, which was codified as a sacrament. The Eucharist moved to, from the general table to be something that's kind of casual. I don't know about you all, but I know my dinner table at home, I do a lot of stuff on it. Um, not everything is, is um, it's not necessarily sinful or, or like unclean, but a lot of things I do on there, like working on a, 
you know, I, the other day I put a LCD in a Game Boy and stuff like that. I'm doing a lot of stuff which has really no spiritual value at all. Um, something you wouldn't want to do in a, a holy site just because it's mundane and kind of casual. But the the Eucharist was meant to be more at an altar than just a generic table. Now, again, it is a table and an altar, but at the same time, it is an element of sacred there. Um, so the Eucharist moved from that. So that's really where it fit in with the tradition of the love feast. Any any thoughts on that before we move on? Well, and I think by understanding this concept, it can help us um, in reading our, our scripture. I know in Corinthians, and I believe in other places too, Paul talks about taking... Uh, communion or the Lord's Supper very seriously. And really in that context, again, historically, he, he probably was referencing something more close to the love feast, which again, the love feast included Eucharist. Yes. Um, yes. But it was also this big meal. And so we, we read about, especially in Corinthians, where, where the the, current, the church in Corinth, some of them were coming in, they were eating all the food. And, and, and so th- basically those who were rich and didn't have to work long hours were able to come in early and do what they wanted to do and show out. And then those who had to work longer hours, the poor people would come in later and there'd be nothing in them to share with and the, the whole purpose of this meal is is fellowship it's thanksgiving it's sharing in life with one another and also uh, remembering who unites us and that is the the the, the life the death and resurrection of our savior and so paul reprimands them and so by understanding kind of the bigger context of this we really can hear and, and helps us then apply it to our lives so when we hear that passage we might be a little bit confused how they were able to abuse that because we just think of it as something like a little cracker and a little cup of juice, but really seeing that this was something in a larger context. And we can maybe then apply that passage to things bigger, like any kind of fellowship meal or potluck the church may share, or any kind of life-sharing event that the church has, how we're supposed to um, conduct ourselves. And although we definitely should conduct ourselves in a very reverent manner when we partake in Eucharist, we should really conduct ourselves respectfully in all aspects um, of church life. And so that's kind of like what Paul's talking about and trying to direct the church. And really, and again, this is just um, interesting bits of history that can help us understand our scripture and our traditions at a much deeper level. Yeah. And I know for a lot of people, they think, well, if we're commanded to have a meal together, why does that always involve, you know, this sort of sacred moment within a, a service or within some specific religious context. Isn't it just any time I decide, well, I'm going to go have a bowl of cereal and I'm doing it with my family, you know, is that, that where it's at? I know somebody had mentioned earlier they were kind of um, taken aback by somebody wanting to do communion with Doritos and Mountain Dew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> places where it's not taken very seriously. But for the early church, they realized you can have the Eucharist as part of a larger fellowship. And that's really what you see happening a lot, really, with the early, early church. People were saying, well, this does fit within. I mean, even with Jesus, it's at the Passover. We'll get to that in a second. But over time, the church starts realizing this needs to be set apart so that people can come in and realize this is not something to be done casually. It's a humbling thing. And it's not something which, you know, people should delay to the point of of death and never even receive the elements at all. There there are times where we see that happening where it gets taken to that extreme, but it is something where people have reverence and respect for it. Pastor Mike? Yeah, I think also not only do we see Paul addressing that in Corinthians uh, in those letters, but Jude addressing it as well in uh, in the letter. Uh, and so what it's saying is that anything, you know, anything that is intended for good can be abused when the focus is not right. And so these love feasts were, were getting um, somewhat off of uh, the focus of sharing life and forgiving one another uh, and they kind of got to the place where some people might want to come and uh, you know show out their uh, you know 
uh, wealth or, or whatever, and it, it became really um, the opposite of what it was really intended. Right. But that being said, the love feast itself, love feast itself is not inherently an issue. Absolutely I actually think, I actually think having the agape, thing. yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing. We're not here to beat up on the love feast. It's just they, they took a little bit different emphasis, and the church needs different things to emphasize different things. It's a, That's not a problem. That's okay. Just do know, stuff within reason and with its proper place, and you're, you're great. Yeah, I know Pastor Amanda um, at, at uh, Trinity Church, They we host something called um, um, Feast and Fellowship, and, you know, it's a little different when you call it the love feast. I think, you know, different uh, cultures and generations have kind of twisted that, but Nazarenes from the very beginning uh, held, you know, Christmas, special Christmas love feast uh, yeah. and different things, and so sometimes they're called agape, but, uh, or agape, however you want to say that, but at the end of the day, um, you know, gathering together, whether it be a Christmas dinner or, or Thanksgiving dinner or, or whatever that may be, it is a great time to just fellowship and love on one another and uh, yeah, move forward. And speaking of moving forward, let's go into transubstantiation. Because if you're talking history of the Eucharist, you, you kind of can't go past <laughs> transubstantiation. Another kind of church jargony word that essentially means that Transubstantiation is the belief that when you receive the elements, the the blood and the 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 body, whether it be you know the the little wafer and a little glass or whatever form it may be, that when you put it in your mouth, it literally, not symbolically, not spiritually, but it literally turns into the the body and blood of Jesus. Um, the bones. When you crunch that, you are crunching on the bones of Jesus. When you taste liquid in your mouth, you are tasting the literal blood of Jesus. So transubstantiation is this belief that even though it may be bread and wine, it may be whatever it is beforehand, once it hits your lips and it's been blessed and it's part of the, the Eucharist rite, it's part of that ritual, it immediately becomes the literal body of Christ. Now, throughout the history of the church, this has been something that has been treated differently at different times. In the early church, there was accusations that the church was cannibals. Um, but later with the Reformation, you know, this is one of the big issues that you see with Martin Luther and some others. They want to move away from the Roman Catholic Church. They, they see transubstantiation as being a problem. And it's really an interesting thing that transubstantiation is a problem. And a lot of them are pushing back on that. Um, and that's just an interesting thing to think about. Anybody have thoughts on that before we... Yeah, I think, um, again, history is fascinating uh, to me in the sense of we don't come to things in a void, right? Um, none of our ideas really are all that new, but also when we try to come to conclusions, we come to them often because in, or in reaction to other things. And so we see in transubstantiation there, there's this, this deep... Um, need of making this very, very sacred, very, very holy. And and it, it, it may go a little too extreme. And so then you see with the Reformation, Martin Luther's trying to pull back a little bit on that and saying, you know, it is just uh, bread, it is just juice, or it's just wine. And, and, and that may have helped some of his congregants in the sense of maybe they didn't have uh, certain things available to follow everything to like the letter of the law, more of the spirit of the law. Um, and then we kind of see today there's this movement almost back into reinvestigating this idea of trans those outside of, I should say, Catholicism, because they've always kind of believed that. But I think in the more Protestant world, we're trying to reinvestigate this idea of transubstantiation because we've seen almost the opposite where maybe where it was taken very, very sacredly, almost to the fact of making it an idol, where now it's very, it can be very casual. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we talk about communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist in such a way that it still holds its holy value, 
um, without making it out to be um, magic. And so I think that's part of a conversation that we continually have in seeing why is it sacred? Is it sacred because it's the literal bread or the literal body and blood? Or is it sacred because uh, God is, is present in the elements? Pastor Mike? Well, I think it's obvious to, to know that there is a great mystery taking place uh, at the sacraments. And so it's hard for us to understand. And I think transubstantiation is one of those things that's always been somewhat wrestled with at some point in time in maybe different ways. But even in John chapter 6, when Jesus um, is, is saying, you know, my, my flesh is the true food and my blood is the true, um, you know, uh, uh, wine, you see that that um, you know many of the disciples quit following not the twelve of course but the others who had yeah. been following so there was a turning away because it did reflect cannibalism well and also with the Eucharist and with the elements there is a mystery to it and people are always trying to explain away mysteries um, especially when it comes to religious things and for a lot of different reasons people want to explain mysteries away. They either want to do it to debunk things. They want it to uh, assert just how true you find apologetic saying, oh, there's no mystery with any of this. This is it. It's literally this. And transubstantiation is one of those places where really, and the Church of the Nazarene is not one who subscribes to the transubstantiation. Um, Pastor Anthony, what do you have? Um, it is kind of funny how the Lutherans later continued to correct transubstantiation. You, have you guys heard of consubstantiation? Yes, but, but explain that. So, for, all right, for yeah. Our Transubstantiation, you have the idea of transform, substance. The substance is being transformed. Consubstantiation, con being similar to with, substance, substantiation. The presence, or the body and blood of Christ are present with the crackers, or the bread, and the um, wine, or grape juice, and uh, at the same time, both being present alongside one another is the uh, developed Lutheran correction to transubstantiation. And I think that's kind of hilarious because it's equally, um, it hasn't pressed the envelope any farther or tried to close the envelope in any way yeah. in regards to, you know, how far uh, that direction is going to be taken. Also, I was going to say in regard to um, the mystery of the sacrament, it is kind of funny whenever you look through the um, epistemology of the word, sacrament and its tradition in the Christian church, sacraments are related to oaths of allegiance, but that was the Latin word that was chosen from the Greek mysterion. And so our present day uh, word that we get from mysterion is obviously mystery. But at the time, mysterion held a sort of ritualistic and philosophical attributes where mystery wasn't just something where it was unknown or like there's some mysterious crime something that you didn't know like that mystery had to do with or at least mysterion had to do with oaths of allegiance which people were taking with the divine and it was sort of just how the connection between um the mundane and the human and the divine is sort of hard to understand and yet it's also something that we can uh perceive and I think that's actually really a really, really perfect way to look into um, the Eucharist is that, you know, it is something that we can perceive and that we get to participate in, although it has qualities of the divine. And so there's things that we're not necessarily going to understand about it. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things with it. With transubstantiation, you can see people trying to 
deal with the tension between the material, so like flesh and blood, what's actually around you can reach out and touch, and then like the the spiritual, the metaphysical, that which cannot really be reached. It's it's you know not on the material plane. And you kind of see that push and pull where someone's saying, well, if this is going to have an impact in my life, it really has got to be materially here, doesn't it? And then the other side saying, but if it's going to have eternal value, then it doesn't need to be something which is purely material. And really transubstantiation, it kind of fits itself in that place where there's a pocket of mystery. There's that tension between a lot of different things. And it's sort of the theology that people got to where they say, well, we're just going to explain it with this. Um, Pastor Mike. I just think that we're fortunate to have multiple words, uh, you know, finite words to try to explain uh, some of these things that, you know, maybe we don't, maybe we don't have the word for it, but the Eucharist of uh, uh, giving thanks, but also the Lord's table. Uh, and probably the one that I prefer and like the most is communion, where it is a God that came and dwelt among us in, in Christ Jesus in flesh and blood. But it's more than just that. But this God dwell, uh, desires to dwell in us and live in us and transform us and shape us. And so you can see all of this, especially with the giving of the, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You can see all of this uh, coming to really to be a, a communion. So that's yeah. a great word for uh, that as well. All right, so just wrapping up the history of it throughout the, the history of the church. Again, throughout different denominations, people have treated the sacraments of the Eucharist a little differently. There are times where people had to be baptized. I mean, you even see that in the Didache, times where you must be a member of a specific church in order to participate. And there are even times where there are movements where you might have evangelists come in and you've got to have a ticket saying that you're able to, to receive the, the elements. But again, it's varied widely throughout things. In the Church of the Nazarene, you do not have to be a member. Um, you do have to be a believer. Uh, but you do not have to be a member of that specific local congregation in order to receive the, the elements. Uh, so that's, that's really where we, we fit with that. And obviously you don't have to have a ticket. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anybody here has ever done ticket punching for that. I have not. Um, no. I would say not. And there's So let's talk about the history of it being instituted in Scripture. Because, again, for a lot of people, and we are hoping that there are some people who are new believers, aren't so familiar with the Eucharist, they're listening to this so we can kind of help people along with that. So let's talk about the history of it being instituted in Scripture. Because, again, one might ask, well, why is this a sacrament? Why is it so special? What is so unique about it? Jesus did a lot of things, but we don't treat every action that he did as if it is a sacrament. I mean, Jesus, he, he did several things which were more the human side of things, but we don't set them apart. We know that he's a carpenter, but we don't sit around and say, well, you've got to be a carpenter or anything like that. What is it that sets the Lord's Supper so apart? So again, let's take a look at it. And Pastor Anthony, would you read from us for us out of Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20? Because here we see a gospel text instituting it. Luke 22, 14. When the hour came, he took, he took his place at the table, and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took up a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you. 
or this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All right, so Jesus had come into Jerusalem to participate in the Passover, and in that moment we see the Lord's Supper instituted. And we see Jesus doing this. He is commanding people to do it. We see in the early church from the earliest ages this is treated as a sacrament. But a good question that you might have coming to this is say, well, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover, so obviously something of this was going on. It wasn't just out of the blue that he sat down with this format meal. And again, the Eucharist itself, it didn't just appear out of nowhere. It wasn't something which just manifested. But it was a fulfillment of a Jewish tradition which was already there. And so a legitimate question someone might have, they say, well, why is Jesus instituting it if he's already coming to Jerusalem to participate in a ritualistic meal? What is the significance of this and where does that come from? What is Jesus fulfilling? And again, as with many aspects of Jewish tradition, Jesus comes to fulfill them, not to abolish them. And we see that happening with the Passover. So Anthony, if you would now take us to Exodus chapter 13, verse 3, and we'll look at a little bit of history behind the Passover, and then we'll tie it all together. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. All right, so if you go to the book of Exodus, and again, Anthony just read that one verse where it's kind of commanded to the people that they're going to do this. But if you look in particularly in chapter 12 and 13, you can see God coming to Moses. You can see God coming really to the whole assembly of of Israel. And he says, you're going to do this. This is going to be where you mark your calendar. You're going to set aside time. Um, On this night, I want you to take and paint blood above your doorstep. And that way you will be marked as the house of Israel and the Lord is going to pass over you. The firstborn of another is going to die so that you can have salvation, you can have freedom, you can have opportunity for another day. In the story of Exodus, the liberty of the slaves in Egypt, the Israelite slaves, comes at a great cost, a huge cost. And if you even read the 10 plagues in the Exodus story, you'll notice that kind of the first nine happen, boom, one after another really quickly. They kind of click together like a machine. But when it comes time for that 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, not only does does God kind of take a step back, but even Scripture itself like takes a few chapters to build up to this. The whole thing kind of slows down to a grind, and God says, something big is about to happen. The firstborn of another is going to die so that you and your firstborn and your family and your descendants can have freedom. You will remember this for all eternity. And we see God. He says, this is going to happen. There's going to be a night. Sort of this angel of death. If you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt, you get an interesting depiction of that. Um, it's a good movie. You should watch it. But the people that have got the blood over the doorstep, it's that visually interesting thing comes and it kills the death or the firstborns of, of Egypt die. The houses of Israel are passed over. It's a high, high cost. It's not an easy thing. It's not something to, to laugh at or sneer at. It's, it's a really serious thing. And God says, remember this, you don't have time to cook the bread, so you just take it while it's unleavened and just get it and go. And that's where the tradition of unleavened bread comes from. It goes all the way back to the Passover. Pastor Mike. Well, you know, as we look at the, the ten plagues, we all, you know, we, we see in, that this is really more than just plagues, that it is truly battles between the gods of Egypt, and that's gods with being plural, there were many, and then the one god of the Hebrews. Yeah. And so, obviously, each one of these plagues, are they're intensified as we get further. And then, just like you said, the God that is over life and death is indeed the God of the Hebrews. And uh, 
So he, it comes at a tremendous cost uh, for them to be released out of their bondage. Yeah, and, and people often depict the God of the Old Testament being sort of the wrathful God. And while this is a very serious thing which happens, it's also quite clear to God that this is, this is not what is desired. You know, he tells his own people, he says, this is such a big deal. You're going to remember this indefinitely. It's not like you celebrate it, you know, once you're there, you have a holiday, you set things aside, and then maybe 100 years from now you all move on. No, he says, this is instated. You do it, your descendants do it, you do this without end. You remember the death of the firstborn so that you could have freedom. And again, we see God sending his begotten son. Again, now it's a much larger scale. While there was a finite amount of people who were their slaves in Egypt, they were liberated. Sure, their children and descendants were blessed. But you see there's that one finite group of firstborns that, that really died in that group that were there. When Jesus comes and dies, you know, it's something which has an infinite implication. It's something which it is continual in the sense that it's continuing to bless people, but at the same time, it is finished. And we don't have to get into the, to the Greek of that. But there is an effect which happened there. It was an, an interesting thing. Um, Pastor Amanda, thoughts on all of this? Well, and I think this is what's amazing, um, again, putting it within its context and seeing that, that Jesus does come to this tradition. And, and like you said earlier, he comes and he expands it. He, he tells his disciples, you, you remember your, your ancestors, you know, way back when and, and how they were freed. And really, like, he connects it with, you know, because they're all waiting. The disciples are waiting for a military king to come and to destroy Rome, right? And everyone's been waiting. They've been waiting since, you know, the judges had to keep fighting all these different clans that were around them as they claimed the promised land. They've been waiting since the Assyrians and the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians and the Greeks. And now it's the Romans. And they're wanting freedom. And Jesus just comes to a table and says, you want freedom? I, it's going to be found not in, 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 in a military victory or, or in, in the right government being set up or any of these things. It's going to be found in, in wine and bread, in spilled wine and broken bread. And so this is, this is what he comes to. And this is why often you will hear the language of Jesus being referred to as the Lamb of God, that the perfect sacrifice has yeah. come. And it's the final sacrifice. We don't have to go back to Jerusalem anymore. And, and and have a sacrifice. We don't have to go to a temple. And only not only do we not have to go to a temple, but we don't have to go through a priest to mediate yeah. us. But now we have this intimate access to God, and we have a complete and holistic salvation that comes to us, um, and, and it impacts. And like you said, it really reverberates not only to the future, um, to today and beyond us, but it even reverberated back into the past that now even, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus, that those who are ex were experiencing the Passover uh, have hope in this ultimate salvation. Yeah, and it's a beautiful thing. All right, some quick questions about receiving the Eucharist. Again, for those who may not know some, some things about the Eucharist, let's ask some questions and I'll throw them out there and I'll let <laughs> us answer it. So first off, why should the Eucharist be received? Pastor Mike. Well, obviously, you know the Eucharist. Uh, well, Christianity is is a is an, in a sense where you make a personal uh, confession and and uh, it's personal with with God. But then there is a very very uh, strong presence of a communal a community in which you share life together. And so, just as we get um, are initiated with our baptism then we must continue to gather regularly and so the church is not just incidental but it is instrumental and that comes from uh, minding the good ground jason vickers book 
But, you know, the church must be instrumental as part of this salvation that grows and transforms us back to the image of God. So, yes, it is extremely important to be a part of, and that's why we should take that sacramental. It brings us into that communal worship. All right, so it brings us into communal worship. Any other answers to that? All right, I'm going to throw two out there. One, Jesus commands us to do it. I was actually hoping Anthony <laughs> yeah. would say that like he did last week with bath. I know. I already pulled that card last he, week, he, and he I didn't want to be that time, guy. Like, well, I don't even ask, and Jesus said do it. Um, That's good. In there. And um, that is true. And that is true. <laughs> it is true. That that kind of if It's not the most academic mindset, but it is one that will it definitely is lead to the right direction. It will lead you in the right direction. <laughs> um, Jesus said do it. And also – it is something which is, again, if baptism is initiating it, this is something which is that continual nourishment. And it, it is a continuing in, of spiritual growth. All right, so next question, who should receive the Eucharist? And again, we are in the Church of the Nazarene context, but somebody answer that for me. Who should receive the Eucharist? Right, so um, we talked about earlier about different standards denominations or Christians have had throughout the year. And so for the Church of the Nazarene, our only criteria is that you are a confessing believer. And there are times and places for there to be kind of a long discussion, I think, on like for especially those who may be backsliding or um, who are doing things that they shouldn't be as confessing believers, that the the pastor and them might have to have a conversation about how they take communion and things like that. Uh, However, we also believe that it's because communion is a sacrament, it is a means of grace by which we participate in that grace, that by coming to it, uh, that could be the act of confessing, of repenting. And so um, there, there is careful consideration to be had. But yes, communion is very serious. Holy Eucharist, um, Lord's Supper is very sacred. It's very holy. And we'll kind of talk a little bit later about what happens when you don't take it seriously. Yeah. Um, and ultimately that... Um, <laughs> Only God truly knows the, the heart of a person. So um, if you want to take that chance and take it uh, not seriously, that's, I guess, between you and God. But um, no, but we, we should take it very reverently. And as I said, it is for the believer. And there are different um, people are believe like we, we offer communion to children, uh, those who, who may not quite fully comprehend um, or haven't quite confessed yet. Uh, they're still maybe under that provenient grace. Um, so, so we offer it to them. Um, as a part of that provenient grace. And sometimes we may not, depending on how the parents feel about it. And again, that's something that has to be discussed between the pastor and their congregants and the families. Um, but again, it, it's something that, that it, it's grace and yeah. we are called to receive it. All right. Next we have, what should the focus of the Eucharist be? Now, the reason why I ask that is, is I have seen times where it has gotten to the point where people say it's for internal reflection. It's a moment of me to come up and examine myself. And that's kind of the only way they see it. They don't really do a lot of remembrance. Now, I'm not here to, to beat up on people if you do internal reflection, because as Amanda said, there is, one does need to make sure that their, their life is in order. You need to make sure that you're right with God when you're taking communion. But at the same time, you don't want to make this out to be a catch-all for other things like repentance or confession or even that moment of coming to know Christ where you say, well, communion just does all of that. You know, it's sort of the, the catch-all. But I have seen places where that's kind of how it's taken, where it's, well, I've, I've sinned, and I get there, and I just look inwards, and they kind of forget to look actually towards the cross and do the whole remembrance of the grace and the, the gifts of God that come to us. So what should the focus of communion be? Pastor Anthony. Well, actually, um, I was just going to say as a side comment, uh, it's what you were saying. Um, I feel like the fact that a lot of people have sort of put a lot of things onto communion 
is probably from the lack of the uh, ritual life in a lot of Protestant churches today. You know, um, later, last week, I think we looked over them. Later, we might do it today as well. Um, talking about the Roman Catholic sacraments. Yeah. You know, they've got a lot of their bases covered for um, the ritual life necessary for the Christian. Yeah. And so uh, I imagine that actually ha- happens a lot less with them. And from people who I, who I know have gone to Catholic adoration, they say it is a totally different experience. And um, I imagine that a lot of people do take time to reflect on uh, sins and other sorts of things and maybe um, stresses of faith and things of that nature during communion simply because we don't have the ritual life capable of carrying the rest of it. Yeah. Amanda? Well, and, and I think that's what and I've noticed. There's there's some different parts to the Eucharist. There's usually kind of three, I guess I should say, parts or elements or kind of ways of, of doing it. And, and usually there's a time for repentance. So, um, you know, examine your life before you come and take communion. Then there's a the part where we uh, usually there's a prayer, um, not of invocation, but the word is escaping me right now, but where we invite God's presence to be made, presence to be made known to us. And that is that saying that this ritual, this rite becomes something more than just bread and juice. Although we don't believe it literally becomes the body and blood, it is something more uh, than that what it is apart from God. And so God is now present in these elements. And then finally, uh, sometimes this is done before you take communion. Sometimes it's done after you have the elements, but you haven't partaken yet. It depends on your church's tradition. But then we go into the remembrance. And again, this remembrance is more than a cognitive um kind of memory or like, you know, rote kind of thing where like you just kind of spout it out. But it really is inviting the whole self to be consumed by the life of God. And so we say on the night that Jesus was portrayed, you know, and we go through that part. And so these three elements, I think, help move us through the purpose of Eucharist. It is saying, here is where you are before you have encountered grace. God has done something that now you may not, you don't have to stay apart from God's grace, but now you have to come and you have to accept it. And all that only happens because God first did it. God made the first move. It is because of the cross. And we can do nothing except for um, respond to God's act. And so that, and so I think if we take those elements of Eucharist seriously and move through them, then we'll find the purpose of, of, of Eucharist quite um, quite clearly. But I, I think also to, to Pastor Anthony's point, yeah, we... And this is something that's just fascinating. When when Martin Luther has his Reformation, he doesn't kind of like pick at one little subject, right? He doesn't just pull a, a tiny thread of the tapestry of theology. He unravels basically the whole blanket. Not completely. I'm over-exaggerating. Uh, but he does this. And so we have to kind of, in reconstructing some of those elements, we, we may have missed out on some things. Yeah. And so Amanda's right. That's the focus that we should have, the purpose. Um, how should the Eucharist be received? And this is a basically a question of if I go to a church where, you know, they have the little individual packets, you open it up, or I went to another congregation, even within the Church of the Nazarene, you'll find variants in this where everybody come up and they dipped. Intention. Yeah. yeah. Um, you might see, and again, if you've never seen that before, it's a, a weird thing. Um, but you might go to a church where everybody brings you around. Maybe you've got a disposable or glass, an actual glass glass, a crystal one down in there. Does it matter how the... Eucharist is received as far as the format of the individual elements. I know there's variants there. Pastor Anthony. Well, I have heard rumors of um, some people with Chex Mix and lemonade, and uh, if that can at all be avoided, I'd like it. I'd like for it to be that. I, yeah, I that kind of goes back recognize. into the Doritos and 
in Mountain, Mountain Dew. Dew. I think a key word <laughs> that we're looking for here is reverence. Yes, and there should yes. always be a reverence with absolutely with that. And and you know, I'm not going to say that you couldn't use because the elements are not as important as the work of God and the work that God is doing, that invitation to come and be of communion. And so I'm not going to, you know, say in some weird circumstance that you, that, you know, some, some weird elements might be, you know, uh, changed because they are, are, they really are, you know, second to what the really focus yeah. is there. And I think the word is reverence. Yeah, it needs to be reverence in some form of bread and wine. Again, crackers and grape juice is probably what's pretty common, actually, for a lot of us, especially in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, well, and I think, again, like Pastor Mike, there might be, like, that weird incident that happens that, like, maybe you have water and check mix. I don't know. But but I think there's really no excuse for the church, at least as it stands here in, in the United States, to not take it very seriously and very yeah. ritualistically. And, again, like, I, I don't know. If you're in the middle of nowhere and that's you know whatever you have access to is whatever you have access to but but for most of us we we can hop down to the dollar tree or the walmart or the kroger down the street and get and take the time to understand again even though it is literally just things mundane material things because we are asking god's presence to be involved that they then become more than mundane things Amen. they are now sacred or holy yeah. then we should make sure we're make you know taking the time to understand what it means for them to be holy and for us to participate in that holiness and so if we're just like eh, just grab this grab that like we we've missed out we have lost the focus and like pastor mike said the um uh, the, the physical manifestation of them becomes secondary but if we don't even have the primary expression downright then i mean just yeah <laughs> we're Absolutely. already lost yeah for, for sure all right, so final question on this before we wrap things up with our little bonus topic. Um, how often should one receive the Eucharist? Pastor Mike. Uh, John Wesley says we should receive it and receive it often. And I know uh, there's times, and this kind of goes back to the previous question, and how should one receive it? I, I believe there is a, an element of communal. And so I may receive it sometimes twice a day, three times a day, depending on the services that we have, but no one is to receive that alone. It's meant to be a communal, yeah. uh, even though it, there is a personal reflection and a personal action going on there, it is still meant to be done in a communal sense. And so it is more important for me to receive it perhaps multiple times a day uh, to participate in that communion with others, but most importantly, with my Lord and Savior. And uh, our district superintendent, Dr. Dwight Gunner, would say, how often do you receive it? And he says, how often do you need to tell your, your wife that you love her and uh, or your spouse? And, and, you know, as long as it's truly heartfelt and meant, you, I don't know that you can say it enough. Yep, yep, often. All right, now let's get into our little bonus question here. So this is where the, the question of taking communion in vain, taking the Eucharist in contempt. Now, Anthony is going to read from us a few verses from Luke 22. Anthony, if you'll read those. And this is after what we read earlier. I thought I was in some sort of trouble there for a second. But anyways, <laughs> I'm going to get on to that scripture. Uh, Luke 22:21. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. All right, now this then is... They shall, then they began to ask one another which of them it could be who would do this. All right, so I, I kind of stepped in there you at the excited. end of Jesus' <laughs> is, is his quote. 
Jesus points out, he's with them. You've got to remember, this is an actual intimate setting. And I know we get pictures like the Last Supper. We see a lot of artistic impressions of this. And some of them are literal um, relief sculptures and things of that nature. People have always depicting this. But you've got to remember, this is a moment where there are real people. It's not just a hypothetical thing. A lot of times people say, oh, they're just allegories with no meaning. No, real people are here. Jesus is here. They took this meal together. And one of them at the table was going to betray. And, you know, when it comes to the question of who should take the Eucharist, a lot of people, they they come to this and they find themselves set apart. What if a sinner slips in? What if someone who is wanting to betray slips in? Y'all talk to me about that. The betrayal <laughs> there at the, the table. And what is that? that mean for for someone who's receiving the elements what does that that mean um i think what's fascinating though as a place to start is that the the, the elements are offered to everybody and, and that although jesus knew at this point that this is going to happen he, even later on he'll be at gethsemane still asking that if there's another way for this to happen but still he's determined to do what god's will is at the same time, he offers this this element of grace to everyone. And, and so we see this, and a lot of times in this language, like it has been determined in other gospels translated, where it almost seems like Judas had no other choice but to be the one that was going to fall. Like he just had to do that. Um, but as good Wesleyan Arminians, we believe in free will. And, and we believe that Judas even had the opportunity to accept that grace and not only partake of it, but to live into it. And as such, maybe could have avoided at least his part to play in the crucifixion of Christ. And that, that can lead us some, down some interesting roads. But my point is, is that if, I think if we're so scared of someone slipping in, uh, we may have shifted focus a little bit. And again, just, just offering the elements and saying, listen, this is God's grace. And you've got to decide whether or not you're going to participate in that grace or whether you're going to reject it. That's your choice. And I can tell you that there's going to be some pretty bad consequences if you reject it. Uh, but it is your choice. And they are offered, though. They are offered to everyone. Yeah, they were offered to Judas, and he was there. And again, again, so many times we separate ourselves from this. This was a real situation where you've got someone who, quite clearly, the mentality of betrayal is there. G Judas has got the bent in, in such a way that these things are going to unfold. Again, there were opportunities, other things could have happened, but it's where it is. Pastor Mike. Well, I think also is the, is the response that the disciples begin to question one another. Who, who could do this? Would it, was it, you know, who is me? Is it I? Is it I? But the, the thing that we should also consider that we are too also disciples. We are also disciples and that when we come to this table we should ask ourselves are we doing anything in our life that that would be a betrayal and I know that goes back to the self-reflection. There are other there, there are so many um, you know faucets and uh, of this manifold grace of God here at this yeah. table that but that is one of them and I see not only the disciples they're doing it but we as disciples must um, you know, analyze our life. Who would betray Christ? Is the life that you are living and the life that I am living, is it reflective of what God has taught in Christ Jesus and the life that we are to live? Pastor Amanda? 
Well, I think it's interesting you're talking about betraying. I mean, and I, I think we often forget Peter betrayed Jesus three yeah, times. Yeah. And he, he accepted it, and he was later on reinstated. And so I think also that, that deals does some fascinating things with some different philosophies that came into the church um, with the idea of sinning after communion or sinning after baptism. But there is this... this idea that, that no one is beyond God's grace. Yeah. Um, now, we can so reject it uh, that we may no longer hear God's voice or we, we may um, be so stubborn and, and hard-hearted uh, that, that we we stop even contemplating God's call. But but no one is beyond God's grace or being welcomed back into the fold. And so th- there's just, again, this Eucharist is this nurturing thing, and, and we never get beyond needing that nourishment in continually coming to that place of needing God's grace. And and even as someone who is saved and sanctified, um, we still need to come to the table and, and, and experience yep. that, that uh, receive uh, that grace. And, and as Jesus says, woe to the one. Woe. If you are the one that is the betrayer, woe right. to you. Well, I think, it, you know, the table is that call not just to come and receive the elements, but it is that regeneration, that uh, repentance, um, you know, it is all of that being a call to come and participate and share life with um, the Holy Trinity. All right, so we're going to wrap this up now. Next week, we're going to pick up talking about what exactly is a sacrament. We're going to actually have a little bit more of a fun conversation. If we were to, not saying that we're in any position to instrument new or install new sacraments, um, but in the Roman Catholic Church, there are seven. And those are baptism and the Eucharist, as we have here in the Church of Nazarene. But they also have reconciliation, which includes penance, confession, they fall into that. And then they have confirmation, marriage, holy odors, and anointing of the sick, which is also known as unction. So they have those seven there. And in the Church of the Nazarene, we just have the two. We have baptism, and then we have the Eucharist. Though a lot of times things like holy orders, ordination, it's kind of treated like it's a sacrament. But it's not really. Um, so we're going to pick up on that next week. If you want to come in and check out that and sort of compare where we are in terms of sacraments go, we will be having a great time with that next week. And as Pastor Mike is trying to show off over there. I have a book of Jason Vickers here called Minding the Good Ground. It talks about uh, the place of sacraments in the church. It is an outstanding book. I've probably read it three, four times, and it'll probably be read again another three or four times. Raise it up a little higher so they can really see it. Got it. Minding the Good Ground, Jason E. Vickers. Hold it back a little bit. There you go. Yep. And uh, Jason Vickers, a Methodist theologian. Absolutely. One of the uh, greater theologians of this day, and uh, he's been under the weather. He's uh, a little bit sick. He's a personal friend of those of us here in this room and we love him we appreciate him and we're praying for him i ask all of you out there watching to say a prayer for jason uh he is in in truly in need of our prayers and hopefully he doesn't hear too much of this program he'll probably fire us too (laughs) to send us a letter that says no more no more stop (laughs) anyways with that god love you have a blessed day we hope you enjoyed the conversation